1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Hi, welcome to Archive Sleuth. This is the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfow, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. I hope you don't mind indulging me at the start of this episode in a leap of the imagination. Imagine it is September 1736, and you are on board a ship, anchored within the calm waters of a friendly harbour. Your ship is shielded from the open sea by a long stone mole and you lie close by other ships. The only light piercing the midnight darkness is from the moon and stars and the dull flicker of your oil lantern. The only noise is the gentle lapping of the water against the hull and the occasional creaks of the timber. You are on deck and on watch, allowing your mind to wander, when suddenly a loud cry from the water startles you into full alertness. You hurry to lean over the side of the ship and see nothing, until, yes, splashing white spray caught in the moonlight. For God's sake, a voice suddenly cries through the darkness, make them keep off, for they had killed my master and wanted to kill me. The splashing apparition is getting closer. You peer beyond him and in the gloom can just make out the silhouette of an approaching rowboat. By now you are not alone. Your shipmates were awoken by the noise and are on deck beside you. Quickly, they throw out a rope, while others fire shots at the pursuing boat. The shivering, wet man they pull aboard is Richard Walker, a cabin boy from a merchant ship anchored nearby. And he has a story to tell. The story of mutiny and murder aboard the Dove Brigantine. The story of the Dove survives thanks to the digitisation of newspapers from the time as well as the Old Bailey Online, a fantastic resource, a digitisation of thousands of trials held at London's Central Criminal Court from the 17th right through to the early 20th century. In using these sources, I was able to find incredible detail about the events that led to Richard Walker making his midnight swim, but very little on his life or that of his ship before September 1736. In fact, on the whole, records for merchant vessels and their crews in the first half of the 18th century are very patchy. The facts we can glean are these. The Dove was a brigantine, a vessel with two masts that was often favoured by merchants and pirates because of its speed and easy manoeuvrability. She last left England's shores in 1730, under her captain Benjamin Hawes. Hawes was a stout, lusty, fat man, according to Walker, lusty at this time incidentally, meaning healthy and vigorous. This concise description, besides the opinion of his final crew that Hawes was a good man, is the sum of all information that survives of the life lived by Benjamin Hawes. When she left England, the Dove was bound for trading voyages towards the Mediterranean and other parts. No systematic records were kept for merchant shipping until 1747, so we cannot track the Dove's movements in the six years before our story starts in the summer of 1736. Ships' names were not unique, and a trawl through port records revealed a number of different ships called the Dove docking in at different points around the world. Among these were records of ships called Dove docking at ports in Jamaica and South Carolina, both on the infamous Slave Trade Triangle. Could these be the other parts that the Dove of our story sailed to beyond the Mediterranean? Did the phrase, the other parts, obscure the Dove's participation in the vast evil that was the transatlantic slave trade? I don't have a definitive answer, but a handful of clues point to this being a possibility. The Dove was registered in Bristol, one of the major slave-trading hubs of Britain, Approximately 12% of all voyages out of Bristol at this time were slave trade voyagers. Furthermore, a ship named the Dove, and registered to Bristol, was owned by a man called William Hare, a prominent slave trader, who managed no less than 38 slave trade voyages over a twenty-odd year period over the 1730s and 40s. And, as previously mentioned... Ships called Dove did dock in Jamaica and South Carolina. The captain's names recorded against these ships do not match, so these were likely different ships. But that does not mean the Dove of our story was not also involved in transporting enslaved humans. And even if she was not, as we shall shortly hear, she certainly did transport commodities produced by slave labour. So, whether directly or not, the profits of the Dove's owner and of her captain Benjamin Hawes, sprung from the miseries of thousands of enslaved people. Let's return to the Dove as she sails the blue Mediterranean Sea. It was common practice at this time for sailors of merchant vessels to leave their ships and claim their wages whenever deliveries were made to a port. Because of this, the Dove had a regular change of crew the only person of Hawe's original crew who was still with him by seventeen thirty six was Walker, who was bound into Hawes's service for a set term of years as his apprentice. These were rather challenging circumstances for a captain to get to know or grow to trust his crew, let alone to build up a sense of camaraderie and loyalty among them. Hawes would have had to rely on the rule of law, established codes of conduct, and the long reach of admiralty rule to uphold his authority among an ever-changing band of strangers at sea. In June 1736, the Dove docked at Marseille on the south coast of France. She was at this time manned by three Italians and one Frenchman, besides the captain and walker. But at Marseille, Hawes signed on a new recruit. An experienced mariner named Nicholas Williams joined the Dove as captain's mate. This was the second most senior rank of the ship, a role of great responsibility, and a person in whom the captain would have invested great trust. After departing Marseille, the Dove voyaged to Livorno on the Tuscany coast. Here she dropped anchor in the sheltered harbour, and settled in, for a six-week wait for a new cargo. During this time, the Italians and Frenchmen were discharged from the ship, and a new crew of mostly British sailors were hired. Including sailors Lawrence Sennett and Edward Johnson. At some point in August, an Irishman named William O'Mara paid Captain Hawes to become a passenger on his ship. O'Mara was in fact also a sailor and had been a crew member on a naval vessel commanded by a certain thin skin Sir Mark Forrester. Unwisely, O'Mara had started a rumor that Forrester had been given his knighthood by the pretender, the exiled Catholic son. Of the deposed English King James II. These were politically very sensitive times. The Protestant House of Hanover had only ascended to the British throne twenty years earlier, and the threat of an armed Jacobite rebellion to restore a Catholic Stuart king was ever present in the air. Captain Forrester had vowed to hang O'Mara for spreading such a libellous slur against him, and O'Mara promptly and wisely scarped jumping ship to join the dove. So, apart from Richard Walker, the people aboard Captain Horse's ship at the end of August 1736 were entirely new, having all only joined over the previous few weeks. What do we know of them? Very little is the answer as to the specific life stories that led to these British and Irishmen happening to wash up in Livorno in the summer of 1736, but a lot about the daily experiences these sailors would likely have lived through. Hopping from seaport to seaport, only ever engaged to work on ships for brief spells, life for merchant mariners in this age was precarious. A yo-yoing between spells of unemployment and uncertainty in the mariner's enclaves on land, which tended to be havens of drink and violence, and spells all too short, enduring the hardships of life at sea. On board their ships, the men would eat, sleep, work and rest within cramped, disease-prone decks, forever rubbing shoulders with their crewmates, never getting any privacy, perhaps always missing the loved ones on far off shores they so rarely got to see. They worked hard around the clock to sail the ships, sleeping in short shifts, surviving on meagre, weevil-riddled rations, and keeping a constant weather eye out for the fatal dangers of bad weather hostile warships, and pirates. And all this for little pay. Pay, in fact, that was kept low by the system of unceremoniously depositing sailors in whatever destination a voyage happened to conclude in. This ensured a large, ever-shifting, ever-hungry population of sailors was always competing for work at every port. Captain Hawes would not have been able to vet his new crew, and it's unlikely he would have felt the need to, It was sufficient to know that the men were experienced. For all the hardships sailors had to endure, theirs was a highly skilled profession. It took years for a landlubber to become a proficient sailor, and many started out in their careers as boys. We'll get back to the story of Mutiny on the Dove shortly. Now, a quick interval, for me to say thank you very much for listening to this episode. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about this podcast, and subscribe for future episodes, you can go to shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. That's shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. Or find and follow Archive Sleuth on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Links to all these sites are in the show notes. That's enough from me. Now just a short commercial, then back to the story.
2: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at com slash acast.
0: The job Hawes hired his sailors for in Livorno was a relatively short one. They were to sail first down the western Italian coast to Sicily, and then, around the boot of Italy, to Ancona on the opposite coast. A voyage of a few weeks at most. The cargo they were waiting for for so long was a consignment of tobacco and sugar. This was the age of the consumer revolution, a time of booming demand for luxury goods such as sugar, tobacco, chocolate and coffee, cultivated using slave labour in the European colonies in the Americas and devoured in ever greater quantities in Britain and across Europe. A ship's load of tobacco and sugar would fetch a very tidy sum. As we have heard, The sailor's life was a tough, grinding, precarious slog. For most it was a job of need, not a job of choice. It was a job they endured to bring tasty, inessential luxuries to those who could afford it. A job that fattened the coffers of the merchants, shipowners, speculators and exchequers, but barely filled the pockets of the sailors. It is hardly surprising then that, once in a while, A disgruntled merchant sailor would watch his ship's hold being filled with the new treasures of empire, and think, why not for once, have a piece of the pie myself? A ship's load of sugar and tobacco was a tempting prize, especially so, considering the riches were stored in the hold of a fast and easily manoeuvrable brigantine, the ideal getaway vehicle. In August 1736, the disgruntled sailor spying for an opportunity was Nicholas Williams, the man Hawes had picked as his second-in-command had, unbeknownst to him, ambitions that lay beyond crewing a merchant ship for other people's profits. While the dove lay at anchor off Livorno awaiting her cargo, her captain enjoyed a break ashore. Meanwhile his captain's mate was very busy indeed, stirring the rest of the crew up with promises of riches and freedom. Williams approached Lawrence Senate first. After swearing him to secrecy, Williams told him that the ship was richly laden, and if Senate could help him procure others to acquiesce with him, it might be run away with. The proposal was simple and sparse on detail. Williams planned to somehow overthrow the captain, seize the ship, and sell her cargo somewhere on the coast of Spain or Portugal. The dividends would be shared equally between whomever of the crew agreed to join him in this mutinous endeavour. At this time, any attempt to take over a ship illegally was automatically considered an act of piracy. In other words, simply by conspiring to mutiny, a previously law abiding sailor was turning pirate. And the penalty for being a pirate, as the crew of the Dove well knew, was death. These were not casual, harmless flights of fancy. By merely talking about turning pirate, the men of the Dove were putting their necks on the line. No wonder, then, that William swore each man to secrecy on a prayer-book before confiding his plot to them. Nonetheless, despite the high stakes, first Lawrence, and then most of the rest of the crew, were easily persuaded. These men lived hard, unstable lives the money they would make by selling the cargo as pirates was more than they would ever earn as honest sailors. By late August, Williams and Sennett had persuaded three other shipmates, named O'Brien, Downing and Butler, to enter into the conspiracy. Needing a place to discuss their plans where they were less likely to be overheard, the men left the Dove and went ashore to Livorno, ensconcing themselves in a corner of the auspiciously named pub, The Sign of the Ship and Mermaid. Sailors of this age not only often believed in mermaids, but believed them to be omens of bad luck. One wonders if the mutineers reflected on this as they sat, heads bowed around a table, plotting away. The mariners were joined at the pub by a sick man, William O'Mara, who, albeit he was a paying passenger on the Dove and not a crewman, and albeit he had only just escaped a hanging on his last ship, was now diving headlong into trouble on his next. O'Mara, though, had a particular skill that was prized by the mutineers. Literacy rates among labouring classes were low in the 18th century, but O'Mara could read and write. It was therefore he who wrote down the articles that detailed the men's still vague plan for seizing the dove, thus formalising their criminal association. Once completed, all six men signed the articles, assigning themselves the ranks they would assume once they had control of the ship. The articles were mostly dictated by Nicholas Williams, and it was he who signed first, appointing himself captain, of course. The remaining men signed one after the other, adopting such roles as mate, boatswain and supercargo, this being the person in charge of the all-important tobacco and sugar. William O'Mara signed last, awarding himself, of all things, the title of doctor. Although totally without qualification or experience, he reasoned that everyone was to have a post, and I am satisfied with anything. Mercifully, his medical skills were never put to the test. The order in which the men signed the Articles of Mutiny would later prove critical, because in the 18th century a practice was developing among mutineers and would be pirates of writing up their plans in the centre of a piece of paper and signing their names around this plan in a circle. These round-robin documents made it difficult to distinguish the ringleaders from the followers, and provided a degree of collective security. Williams, though, disdained of the need for such an insurance policy, and was very open in establishing himself as the leader of the mutiny and the captain-in-waiting. Given their lifestyle, it is unsurprising that some merchant sailors, especially those of plenty of time to idle away at anchor, should plot to become masters of their own fate. It is a little surprising, though, to see who was the ringleader in this particular case. Nicholas Williams, as captain's mate, would have been a highly experienced professional sailor, someone who had most likely worked his way up from humble deckhand to a senior position of authority. In time, he may have even commanded his own ship, legally, that is. We simply don't know what, in Williams' life history, made him gamble all he had achieved on the chance of making a clean getaway with a bunch of men he had barely met days earlier. My own theory is that he had simply had enough of slogging his way through the system, and had decided at some point before ever setting foot on the Dove that he would, when the chance arose, try to seize a ship, any ship with a decent cargo to sell. After the articles were signed, Williams took charge of them, and the group dispersed, some returning to the ship and some remaining ashore to enjoy the town. Within two days, though, the mutineers reconvened at the pub. One amongst their group, Andrew Downing, had grown nervous, and had had second thoughts about turning pirate. Not wanting to harbour a splitter among them, the mutineers harangued Williams to hand over and destroy the articles. Williams refused and prevaricated, but finally extracted the papers and held them over a candle. There, tis in ashes, he said, as the papers burned before them. A relieved Downing... Never returned to the Dove. His decision to wash his hands of the mutiny, whether arising from a prickle of consciousness, a bout of risk aversion, or another cause, was a very smart move, if only his former co conspirators had followed his lead. As the articles burnt to ash, the men of the Dove had an opportunity to walk away from their plot, to live on without fear of evidence of their intended crime ever coming to light. A chance to spare whores a grisly fate, and to spare themselves the noose. It was an opportunity they did not seize. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. Part 2 of the story of Mutiny and Murder on the Dove Brigantine will be released on Thursday the 12th of May. Please subscribe now to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the next chapter of this tale. Thank you to everyone who has been supporting this podcast. It is really appreciated. If you enjoy listening, please pass on word about Archive Sleuth to your friends, family, and partners in crime so that the show can grow and I can continue to bring you ever more exciting stories from the archives. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated, and produced by me, Georgina Asfow. This episode was based on the proceedings of The Old Bailey from the 24th of February, 1737. Available to read on The Old Bailey Online. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, Passage of Arms by Shane Ivers, and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod.